0: Welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 47. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. Do you love vintage cars? Then go to CarsYeah.com. And get a free copy of the fantastic Filler Up book. It's a full-color ebook filled with fuel filler fun, with over 60 color photographs of vintage cars, plus inspirational quotes from some of the most famous automotive enthusiasts of all time. Simply go to carsyeah.com, click on the free book button on the homepage, and download your Filler Up book today. It's free at carsyeah.com. Hello, automotive enthusiasts. I am so excited today to introduce my special guest, Bert Levy. Bert, are you buckled up and ready for a fun ride?
1: Am I in the driver's seat or in the other one that I don't like as much?
0: I'm guessing you're in the driver's seat.
1: All right, then let's go.
0: Awesome. Let's fire
1: it up and rub uh, it up and go.
0: <laughs> okay. Bert B.S. Levy is an award winning motorsports journalist, an infamous author, a lifelong British car nut, and notorious race cars ride mooch. He's the author of celebrated cult classic, the 1950s sports car novels, The Last Open Road, and its wonderful sequels, Montezuma's Ferrari, The Fabulous Trash Wagon, Tully's Ghost, The 200 Mile Per Hour Steamroller, and his utterly hilarious short story collection, A Pot Side Companion. He's piloted all sorts of vintage race cars by mooching rides at the tracks across the country from Laguna Seca to Watkins Glen. A true automotive entrepreneur, Bert is sure to fill our ears with his humor and iconic BS. So hide your car keys and listen up. So Bert, I've told our listeners just a little about you, so take some time and take us through your history, your business, your career, your interests, and of course, your love and passion for automobiles.
1: Oh God. Hey, you know, when I was a little kid, I mean a little, little kid, uh, my folks used to say that I could name every car on the road. And... um I guess I was born with a case of the car disease and it was odd because it was not something that my mom and you know, anybody in my family really had. I guess I caught it from my Uncle Howard, who was the uh the black sheep bachelor who had a Porsche three fifty six that I got to ride in the back of. It was a like a sixteen hundred normal coupe and I got to ride in the back of it in a funeral procession, of all things. Oh, wow. And Howard went on and on about what made the Porsche uh, better than any other four-wheeled device known to man, uh, something that Porsche owners continue to do even today. I kind of got it from him and from my big brother's best friend, Jay Porter. Uh, I was basically into hot rods. I was building plastic models of hot rods, really, and Jay Porter taught me all about Le Mans and Mercedes and Maserati and all that stuff. And he thought hot rods were for street corner Neanderthals with cigarettes rolled up in their sleeves. And, <laughs> and he was really a cool guy. I mean, he used to listen to jazz music and cruise around town on a little light blue, I think, I can't remember if it was a Vesper or a Lambretta motor scooter, and he wore sunglasses even at night. So I knew this guy was really cool and I thought <laughs> he must, Really know what's going on, and I caught the bug, yeah, worked on cars, uh talked my dad, my brother and I talked my dad into getting a sports car finally two years before I got my license uh he got a uh, nineteen sixty corvette, leased it uh he was a salesman, pretty good salesman, and they said he could have anything Chevy had and he used to have a turquoise blue fifty nine impala convertible. you remember the one with like the bat wing
2: oh yeah, rear cool car.
1: We talked him into getting a sports car. So he gets a 1959 Corvette. No, a 60 Corvette. And it wasn't anything fancy. We did talk him into stick, but it was white with a red interior and it was the base 230 horsepower engine with a four speed and, you know, no pause traction or anything like that. But that car got stolen and stripped, which a lot of them did in Chicago at the time. And so he got a 61. That was the one with the kind of pointy back end that, kind of foreshadowed the coming of the Stingray two years later. Sure. That one was stolen and stripped oh my gosh. before I got my license. Oh, no. And to this day, although my dad's passed away several years now, I've always thought that he might have just turned it in to keep me from killing myself, which <laughs> at that point would have been a very real possibility <laughs> with a Corvette and a 16-year-old that thought it was Im- not only immortal, but also probably the best racing driver that I had ever breathed. Of course. And escalated from there. I uh, bummed around as a hippie for a while, but I worked as a motorcycle mechanic, worked in, in a dealership and finally did my first race in nineteen seventy in a six hundred dollar T R three that was really I didn't know it at the time, it was kind of a death trap and as I always say it's racing is one of two things in my entire life for actually doing it was better than all the you know the anticipation that I had from beforehand you know I I just thought it was great still enjoying it today I mean when you're out there on the track there's a concentration and a solitude to it that's just unique and I love the competitiveness of it and of course I love the machines I mean you you know racing is probably the closest thing to mechanized warfare that can exist in peacetime you know <laughs> yeah and you've got that same sense of purpose that same you know how can we improve the weapon that we've got how can we make it better how can we make it more effective you've got you in the track which is a A really lyrical experience. One of the first guys I had as a driving instructor was the late Jim Fitzgerald, who was Paul Newman's teammate for years. He was head instructor at Road Atlanta for many years. And he used to say driving a race on a racetrack was like dancing. And the more I thought about it, the more I think he's right. Uh, When it's going good, there's just a lovely flow to it and rhythm. And then on top of that, you've got this mental chess match going on between you and the other guy about how do I keep him from using where his car is better than mine and how do I use where my car is better than his to cover his moves or to get around him. And I mean, if you have the bug, A, I don't think you lose it and B, I think it's, I've never found anything that fills me so much that there's just not room for any of the crap from everyday life to get back in
0: you described it extremely well because i've raced vintage cars for 10 years as you know because we've been at some tracks together and uh the way you described it is exactly right and what i love most about it it is a solitude you forget about everything you have to there's it's like riding a motorcycle you have to be so focused that you start to notice Every pebble on every corner, and you come around a yeah. corner again, you go, Where'd that rock go? That was there last time I was here. So, you, you described it great. It is a wonderful dance. How did you get involved in your writing? Because you've been racing forever and ever. You continue to yeah. race, which is fabulous. First,
1: first race 1970, and basically, I, I raced myself up to the limit of my credit cards, is what it basically <laughs> boiled down to. I had run in a group called the Midwest Council, and I think you guys have a group like that in the Pacific Northwest. It's sort of like a, it, well, it wasn't a vintage group so much as a lower-dollar regional alternative to the SCCA. Okay. And and in those days, which is not true anymore, and I have some wonderful friends in the SCCA, in those days the SCCA was a little more of a rich boys club Uh, when I first got started, you had to have a sponsor within the club to get a membership. And it was a little more like the fictitious SCMIA in my novels. Not that there's any similarity between the two, God (laughs) forbid. But particularly for guys that didn't have a lot of money, council was a great alternative. And I started out in a $600 TR3, and I kept didn't really know anything about building cars or racing, except that a, I had tremendous enthusiasm, tremendous, totally unfounded self-confidence. I kept building TR3s. I was so busy trying to win races that I forgot that first got to finish races. <laughs> so for about three years, I built a series of TR3s that went faster and faster and faster for shorter and shorter and shorter periods of time. Then in 19... Oh, God, I rolled the... My wife and I got married and met her on a blind date. We've been together forty years now and she was <laughs> not a car person. As a matter of fact, she was a pretty straight Italian Catholic girl and I was an ex hippie Jewish kid who'd been into just about every dissipatory activity you can think of. <laughs> and we just we hit it off on the first date and have been together ever since. Opposites and of tracking. Yeah, and the, no, really, absolutely true. And uh, the first race after we got married, I rolled my last TR3 into a ball. Uh, didn't get hurt, but it was not a very auspicious start. At that time, we had our own shop. I had convinced her, uh, I shouldn't say convinced her. She said, are you sure you know what you're doing? And I said, oh, yeah, sure <laughs> I do. <laughs> we had, as soon as we got married, we quit two good uh, white-collar jobs and opened a sports car shop called Mellow Motors in Chicago, and I had no more business thinking that I could run a sports car shop. Uh, people that are into racing don't realize, or that people on the outside don't realize, a race car is really quite a bit more simple uh, than a street car. You mm-hmm. know, it's only got to run for a half hour, and you don't have to worry about, you know, a heater or air conditioner keeping it cool in traffic. Um, any of those things. To say I was over my head is an understatement. And the fact that her father didn't kill me is, <laughs> is amazing at the time. But we were running this shop, and we ran it for three years. It was really... It, it, it was an awful experience. I mean, so many terrible, terrible things happened that just because we didn't know what we were doing, or I didn't know what I was doing, but those experiences... Uh, formed the core of what's inside the books. Uh, the stories in the Potside Companion are almost, well, about half of them are stories of what happened, you know, back at our shop. We finally sold the shop. I went to work for a little while as a service assistant service manager for a Lincoln Mercury dealership. Probably the worst job I ever had in my life outside of being a heater in a drop forge.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I just hated the guy I worked for. He was a real jerk took terrible advantage of his customers, was only interested in, in doing... His shop only did about eight things because he there were these certain jobs like replacing the EGR plate under the carburetor or doing brakes or shocks where all his guys knew how to do it and it was easy money and there were no comebacks. You know, it was perfect. He hated it when they actually got a job in where you had to do some diagnostic work and as a result uh he would either overcharge terribly or turn those jobs away and i i didn't like working there ultimately i wound up um going to see about getting a service manager job at a mercedes dealership and i went in and interviewed and after the interview the general manager looked at me and he says you know i can't hire you as a service manager for mercedes you don't you don't know nearly enough for that. But if you want to work as a salesman, I'll hire you right now. Because <laughs> with your line of bolt, that's what you should be doing.
2: <laughs> so I became
1: a car salesman. I wound up at a dealership called Lober Motors in Chicago. And the people from there are still very good friends uh, all these years later and worked selling cars. And uh, we had great lines to sell at the time. We had... We had Volkswagen just when they had the first fuel-injected rabbits, and I truly believed that they were the best small car you could buy. And, you know, that kind of, you want to sell something, it's a whole different deal if you believe in what you're trying to sell. Of course. And I, I believed in that car. I thought, this is just a great, great, great car. And I sold the crap out of them. We also had uh, Mercedes-Benz. Rolls Royce and Alfa Romeo, wow. and Alfa Romeo was uh, a, a car that you loved—not in spite of its problems, but you know, inclusive of its problems. If you had a passion for Alphas, you know, you could not be dissuaded by the fact that they would, particularly then, '76 they were rusting on the boat on the way over from Italy. <laughs> the Spica fuel injection that they used then, then which is really a very good system, uh, but unfortunately mechanics that hadn't gone to school in it, you know, street corner mechanics, shops like my old shop, would have one come in that wasn't running quite right or that had failed to start because the guy had pumped the gas like you would with any carbureted car, and that was a sure way to flood a, anything with Spica injection. And so they'd grab anything with a with a screw slot or a threaded adjuster on it and start fooling with it. And pretty soon they had it so screwed up that it wouldn't run right anymore. Hmm. But at any rate, uh, they had a crash one up in the body shop, and uh, the owner wanted it totaled. And it was one of those borderline deals. It wasn't hurt underneath, but cosmetically it looked pretty rough. So they totaled it. Uh, I made a deal and bought it with some help from the dealership. We turned it into a race car and went Midwest Council racing, and I won five championships in that car and two undefeated seasons, which is, I mean, and the car, you know, we cheated. Uh, (laughs) We discovered some things you could do with the injection, and if Midwest Council had had a set of scales, I never would have won those championships. I got a big head and got some help from Alpha, and we went national racing in 83 in Showroom Stock, you know, right at the bottom of the financial, you know, mountain, and I ran eight nationals, won four of them, set two lap records, went to the runoffs at Road Atlanta, this was a huge deal for me, and we went down there, and I, you know, I made a mistake. You, You should... In, in retrospect, you go down there with what got you there instead of trying to build something super special for the runoffs. Blew up the, good, the supposedly good motor, the trick motor that I built that was going to make me devastatingly fast. Uh, broke the other one. We wound up building this Frankenstein monster motor in the, you know, in the dirt, in the paddock. And just had the weekend from hell, I think. I had a good race with the guy, but it was like for 10th place. We were in a borrowed van, and I'll never forget the trip home. And this is a, one of these stripper vans that with no sound deadening, and so it's like 14 hours in a kettle drum.
2: <laughs>
1: My wife's here with me, our little dog, and our son, who had been born just three years before. And every credit card I got is at the red line, and I'm, I'm thinking, I've got to find a different way to do this. You know, this is just no good. So basically I started writing about racing as a way to get my hobby for free. I discovered I discovered vintage racing and I discovered that I could write my way into cars that I could never dream of affording. That guy that he's passed away now but the guy that really helped me out was a guy named Joe Marchetti. Joe was a restaurateur in Chicago with a famous Italian restaurant down in the 1st Ward and all the unions, all the gangsters, everybody that wanted to have little quiet meetings that no one would know about or record, they came to Joe's restaurant. And it had been there forever, and it was a wonderful restaurant. Great big place, but with all these, it it was made up of many smaller rooms instead of one huge room. Joe was the guy that started the vintage races up at Road America. He called them the Chicago Historic Races, and put them on out of his own pocket for many years, and he wanted me to write something for his program up there about a driver's eye view of Road America, which I did. And in return, instead of giving me money, because Joe hated to give anybody money, (laughs) he put me in a Ferrari, and I wrote a story about it for Week. And then one of his customers offered me another Ferrari to drive pretty famous car called the Bread Van. It's one of a kind.
2: Oh, of course. You want to look it up. Yeah.
1: yeah. I drove that for Joe twice, and I wrote another story for a feature for another magazine, and I thought, this is pretty cool. I'm getting to drive all these unbelievably cool cars, sometimes even race, and then I'm getting paid. Not a lot, but I am getting paid. How many race drivers can look themselves in the mirror and say, I am being paid to race cool cars?
0: <laughs> Wonderful.
1: So... The the ride mooching began today. I mean, you'd have to go on the website to see it, but I've probably driven literally hundreds of different race cars, everything from bug-eye sprites to Formula One to NASCAR stock cars. I've driven two of the five Corvette Grand Sports on the planet, a bunch of Ferraris, a bunch of Porsches. Uh, I've made some wonderful friends. I'm still at it. Uh, last Sunday, I was out at Autobahn, a track near us, in a Bill Thomas Cheetah, which
0: oh, cool cars, is
1: pretty, yeah, cool. But what's the rate It's not evil, <laughs> but it's it's got a temper. It, it, uh, it looks like
0: it. The stance of that car is just
2: a,
1: well, you know, it's as wide as it is long, and it's not very long. There is no drive shaft. The engine sits right in the middle of it. It's good on turn in. As you head into, you'll, you'll understand this. As you turn into a corner, if you give the gas a little lift, the rear end will rotate just like you want it to. Mm-hmm. Uh, very predictable and everything. But coming out of the corner under power, and remember, this is a 1,700-pound car with probably 700 horsepower. Oh, uh, goodness. You tromp on it, and you just you cannot feel where the edge is. And there's a real sensation that if you ever find it, it, there's going to be teeth in it. Yeah. And so, whereas it's not a comfortable car to drive, it's very fast. And the, I'm working on a feature on these cars for Vintage Motorsport Magazine that I write for regularly. Tremendous story. I mean, there's, oh my God, there's um, unfulfilled promise. They could never get the car homologated to race against the Cobras, which was the original idea. So they had to run at sports races after rear-engine cars had already started coming in. So the car really never got even an opportunity to do what it was originally designed to do. And I think if it had ever been able to do that job, it would have blown the Cobras in the weeds. All you Cobra guys in the audience, don't I don't want to hear from you. <laughs> but it, it's true. I mean, the, the Cheetah was arguably... Three hundred pounds lighter or two hundred pounds lighter than a cobra at least had a bigger engine, more power. What's the fair way to put this? a not any worse suspension system
2: because mm-hmm. the
1: original two eighty nine cobra was not even Carol Shelby said they didn't handle too good, so if the car had ever had an opportunity to do what it was originally designed for, I think it would have had quite a career. It didn't. It ended with a very suspicious garage fire, which wound up morphing into a sheriff's sale. There are a couple people I know, one of whom I drove for up at Road America, doing recreations, some of them very good. Bob here, in particular, uh, his cars are, you almost can't tell them from the original. And they're, you know, it, it, it's just a great story. Uh, you know, all the great racing stories are not always about the guys that win, but about the the dark horses and the ones that never fulfilled their promise and, the, you know, all the what-ifs, and particularly a car like a Cheetah that looked, you know, with everybody's favorite slot car body. Oh, of course. such a wicked, wicked-looking thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, so that's they're... what I did last Sunday. <laughs> well...
0: You have shared a wonderful story that brings us up to today, and I appreciate that, and you're you're doing some things that only car guys could dream of. So, Bert, as we continue on your journey, I'd like to ask you about a success quote.
1: There are actually two things my dad said. Now, my dad was, uh, as I said, not a, he was a sporty guy, but he wasn't really a car guy, kind of an armchair philosopher. He was an entrepreneur, uh, started his own, he'd been an optometrist and decided he didn't like it and started his own business in packaging, which in, at the time was a, in its infancy, uh, that industry. Two things that he said kind of stuck with me. One was, whatever you want to do in this life, you better do it because you're a long time dead. Hmm. And the other one he said is, there's only one thing you ever need to know and that's what you have to do next. And if you know that, everything will take care of itself. Now, unfortunately, I've lived by those words. It turns out that that second one, I don't want to say it's bad advice, but it's advice with deep chasms on either side if you make a (laughs) misstep. Yep. It is good advice in terms of finding what you want to do, trying your very best to pursue those kind of dreams because, like you said, you know, you're a long time dead, and if you miss, you don't want to be one of those guys that wakes up at age 50 and feels like, you know, Jesus, I wish I had tried this or that. Absolutely. And, and never did. So those are my two success quotes.
0: Oh, well, those are great, and you've certainly incorporated those into your life. It's very obvious to me. You told us earlier about riding in your this is your uncle's Porsche 356, but one of the questions I had for you was, Was there a pivotal moment in your life when you really knew you were a car guy? Was it that moment, or is there something else?
1: Actually, there's two that came after that that were more key, because in my my uncle's car, I was just a passenger. I was getting the mystique, where he's telling me how great the Porsche is, and he's explaining to me torsion bars and rear engine and air cooling, and all I knew is that I was sitting in that little back seat, but I was a little kid. It sounded like the world's biggest Hoover was behind me,
2: <laughs> you know, with
1: that engine and the cooling fan and everything. And I'd never ridden in anything that was that mechanical feeling. And I thought it was really cool. But there, there are two moments that really stand out. One was probably about two years after that, i talked my dad into getting me a go-kart. And I, well, I didn't actually, I didn't talk him into getting me. Let me rephrase that me and my good friend Frank Feldinger had embezzled $39 plus shipping from his college fund. <laughs> and in the back of the hot rod or go-kart magazines, you could order a frame from this company, a go-kart frame, for 39 bucks plus freight. Mm-hmm. And we decided since we'd embezzled from his college fund, uh, we better have it shipped to my house. And about a week later or Two weeks later, my mom says, you know, there's a big box out here. Any idea what it is? Oh, no, I have no idea. Mm -hmm. So I took it back down and opened it up, and here's this bright red go-kart frame with nothing on it, no wheels, no tires, no brakes, no... But it's basically a frame with a pad for an engine and this little steering yoke, and you could turn the front spindles. That was the whole thing. But I was enraptured. I mean, to me, it was a... You know, a Ferrari 330P. It just wasn't quite done yet. <laughs> yeah. I remember I put it up on a couple of sawhorses in my basement, and I would come down there at night and sit on it and make you know race car noises and and turn the wheel or the the steering yoke. So my dad kind of took pity on me. I'd cut some lawns and done worked at a newspaper agency on Saturdays and saved up enough money to buy some. Uh, wheels and, used wheels and tires from a go-kart shop. And if you look at the picture on the website, I had slicks on the back and knobbies on the front. <laughs> so I essentially had a, a a vehicle that was suited to absolutely no known pavement uh, yeah. you know, in creation. <laughs> and I still didn't have a motor. I couldn't afford it. So I would push it across. We lived right across the street from Neutra High School, and in the back there was a... Uh, like a power plant and there was a concrete ramp that went up about a story and it was fairly steep and I would push this frame and wheels over, take it up to the top of the ramp, sit in it, push myself off like you would if you were in a luge, go down and take one corner at the bottom and feel the rear end slide out and then it goes to a halt and I have to push it back up the hill again. And I thought that was really cool. And finally, my dad broke down. I, it wasn't for birthday. It was for some other occasion. And we bought a, a motor for it. It turned out to be the wrong motor to have, but it was painted such a pretty color of metallic green. Of all the motors that were up there on the shelf at B&G Imports, that was the one that just called out to me and said, I am your motor.
2: Hmm.
1: Put that on, and I'll never forget this this day as long as I live. We came back. It had to be late Saturday afternoon. We lived across the street from Neutra High School in the teacher's parking lot. Pretty big asphalt parking lot. It was empty. And so we went over there and fired it up. And I took my first lapse in anything where I was hanging on the wheel. I was stepping on the gas. I was stepping on the brake. And it didn't take me long to discover oversteer <laughs> and how much fun that was. Yeah, I mean, it was... it. it Whenever I give a speech, I always throw this in, this experience. I always say, if the fuel tank had been big enough, I'd still be out there today.
2: <laughs>
1: I mean, I just loved it. I loved everything about it. Sure. And then when I finally got, you know, I I used to drive crazy on the streets uh, like all of us did. Uh, my dad had a TR-3 and then a Corbett Spider, and when I went to my first, racing school and entered my first race where I found out what it's like when you don't have to worry about cops and oncoming traffic and ditches and telephone poles and dogs running out. I just said, this is for me. This is what I would like to do as much as I can for as long as I can.
0: And you've been doing it ever since, which is fantastic. So Bert, what I want to do now is take a look at some of the roads you've driven down and get under the hood and get our hands a little dirty. Would you share with our listeners a huge challenge or even a great failure that you faced in your career that pushed you to a breaking point and, more importantly, how you overcame that and what you learned from it?
1: Well, I think there's three uh, that stand out. One was um, when we finally realized, my wife and I, um, and she has been, I mean, for 40 years she's been... Not always approving of what I do, as a matter of fact, uh, oftentimes far from it. But she's been so supportive. And at times when we've gone through tough times, you know, we have gone through tough times. And I'll say, you know, if I had done thus and so, we could have a lot of money. And, uh, you know, if I'd chosen a different line of work. And she says, no, this is what you're meant to do. I would say the three times. The first one was when it dawned to us slowly that we really had to close the sports car shop. It was... We weren't making any money. We were working 60, 70-hour weeks. And as a long-term goal, it had by then dawned on me that for my life's work, I didn't want to be running a car shop. It wasn't really... And it also occurred to me that... I was doing less racing since I'd become a shop owner uh, than I'd ever done before or since. So that was one that was difficult um, to swallow, and I could, we kind of wandered in the wilderness for a while before I got my job at Lober Motors. Um, and there I felt I belonged again and that I was doing something of value um, and that something I could do good at. The second one... Uh, was my brief and fitful pro career um after that experience i told you where uh, i rolled over my tr3 Mm
2: -hmm.
1: um actually no it was after my mechanic rolled over my alpha that's right
2: (laughs) a couple roll i had
1: he he asked if he could go through driver school in my car with me as his instructor and on his first solo lap he rolled it over and actually my my writing career started there i I had written a couple of things for Joe Marchetti and also for On Track magazine and Auto Week. And On Track had reached out and said, you know, how would you like to be a correspondent of ours in the Midwest uh, next year for pro racing? And, you know, magazines, I don't have to tell you, are notoriously cheap. And they want to get a guy in the Midwest in so order to pay the travel expense. So I said, no, 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 I'm a racer, not a writer, really. I I just, you know, I only do that to try to get rides. And then the cars rolled over and we don't have money to fix it, and I called on track back and I said, you know, that writing deal sounded pretty good uh, (laughs) now that I have no place to go and I want to stay in touch. And so in 1984, I covered the Emsen Trans Am Series in the Midwest, made a lot of friends that I still have today on the pro side, a uh, tremendous experience, but didn't know if I'd ever race again. And Then I got a call from a guy who now runs and has for years uh, the Acura Pro Team, uh, P.D. Cunningham. P.D. was, I don't know if you know P.D., he's the winningest driver in World Challenge history. He's a very successful pro sedan driver in the United States. Runs the team. At that time, he was just another Oak like me trying to get started on on a pro career and we he had found a guy with money and set up a team to go run the old escort and firehawk series and there was a third partner and they had a a bit of a blow up and a i guess you could call it a a team divorce at the 11th hour and i get this phone call from Petey, who would run against me a couple of times he said we were about to go do a 24-hour race at St. Louis, do you want to be one of the drivers? I said, what does it pay? He said, nothing, but all your expenses are covered, and if we win any prize money, you get your share. I said, you know, I'll be there, absolutely. (laughs) So I ran with them for two years, and I discovered two things. The first thing I discovered is that my desire to be a pro racer changed quite a bit after I saw what that life is. The airplanes, rental cars, motel rooms, racetracks, more rental cars, more, you know. Uh, yeah. And, and also, the, the when you get serious about it, it's not as much fun. And, I mean, this was the lowest possible level of, quote, pro racing, unquote. Uh, and yet, even so, the camaraderie and fun that I'd enjoyed, in the amateur ranks, was kind of missing. And I didn't much love the cars. We ran a Toyota the first year and a Nissan ZX Turbo the second year. And the ZX Turbo in particular And nothing against Nissan or Datsun. They've done wonderful things. But to me, it was just a big, fat, dumb, clumsy, fast car. Didn't really love it. I did enjoy the competition. But the other thing I learned is that PD was better than me. Everywhere that we went, and we had, I think, four or five different national champs run with us. And I could run pretty much even up with most of them. I mean, where you're down to like tenths and hundreds of a second. But PD. was always a little better. not a lot. I mean, it could be a half a second, it'd be three-quarters of a second, but he was better. And not only was he quicker, he'd get through traffic better. And he'd take less out of the car. He'd take less out of the brakes. He'd get better fuel mileage. And I damn near wrecked two of the team's cars trying to prove that I could do what Petey could do. And finally it dawned on me, you know, Bert, he's better than you. (laughs) And if you can't hold... And admittedly, you know, who knew at the time that he would go on to become the winningest SCCA pro driver or pro sedan driver ever. And that's a... There's a lot of good guys in that field. But I'm thinking, if you can't run with your own teammate and you pursue a career in pro racing, you're going to be just another one of those guys where a good day is finishing in the bottom third of the top Mm ten. And you're never going to win a race unless it's just dumb luck or the faster guys break. At the same time, uh, to do a story for Auto Week, I discovered Vintage Racing. And I fell in love right away. I mean, here were all the cars I grew up lusting after, out on a track, running. And it, in those days, most of the guys running in were more collectors than racers, a, a situation that's changed quite a bit today. I mean, guys like Rob Walton, and I don't mean to pick on him. I'm just picking him out of a crowd. He has turned into one, of a hell, of, one hell of a good race driver. And it has got a lot of neat cars that he runs and he drives, oh, yeah. <laughs> and he drives them like he, can, like he can afford to fix them.
2: And he can. <laughs> and,
1: but in those days, if you were an experienced driver, and, and even half fast, uh, you looked like Sterling Moss compared to what was out there. And so people started asking me to do a little coaching or drive their cars. And I would drive a car, write a story about it. Um, another guy had offered me a car and I'm thinking, you know, the heck with that pro racing stuff. That's too hard on my ego. This is just exactly what I want. And that became the career. So that was the, the second big difficult moment. And the last one's real simple. and I'll make this short. Uh, I started working on my first racing novel. I can tell you the exact moment, 1986. I was driving an Alpha that was half-owned and sponsored by Joe Marchetti, the guy that had helped me out you know, into my first Ferrari. Uh, I was down at the Bahamas Vintage uh, Grand Prix, which was a week-long party uh, with some loud noise thrown in. Mm-hmm. And I had thought about doing a racing novel for a long time. And I'd even started, I, actually not started, I'd actually written one that was, you know, I hope no one ever finds the manuscript because it's pretty awful. Uh, <laughs> I wrote it in third person, which has never been my style as a storyteller. And I decided, I decided I wanted to really write a good racing novel. And I was sitting by the pool with a ferocious rum hangover, and I just started <laughs> writing. And the computer I had at that time, the laptop, uh, used a word processor called WordStar, where I think, I can't remember the total number of bytes that I could put in, but you could only put so many in a file. That's one of the reasons why the chapters in Last Open Road are so short. I'd run out of space, and I'd say, okay, I've got to wrap this on and move up (laughs) to another chapter and get this done. And what made Last Open Road different was that I realized you can't focus in on a driver or let a driver be your narrator because drivers are all full of crap. You know, they got big (laughs) egos. uh, They see things, even the nice ones. And I've got some wonderful friends that are pro drivers. But they see things from a very centered perspective. And that center is right behind their own eyes. And so I thought, well, why don't we tell this story through the eyes of a mechanic? kind of a classic Moby Dick kind of thing, Call Me Ishmael, where you've got a guy that's right there, he's in the scene, but he's not the guy driving the action. He's not the key person that moves the storyline along.
0: You get a bit of a more honest story that way, right?
1: Well, I don't know how, you know, I, I don't think there's any novelist that knows how this process works. I was on a panel with a couple of other much more successful novelists. One lady who's been quite successful at it said something that's always stuck in my head. When it's, you know, when it's coming, you're just the tube it flows through. Mm-hmm. You, you can diagram things that you want to happen plot-wise and this and that, but when your characters start doing things that surprise you, boy, that's when you've really got something going. That's when they're really real to you. But anyhow, it took me a long time to get to that. It took me eight years to write that book, not because it was longer or more difficult than the later ones, but simply because I had no idea how to write a book. And I kept giving up. You know, you'll never finish this. Who are you kidding? And if you finish it, you'll never figure out how to get it published, blah, 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 blah. So finally, I did get it done. I've never had a problem with self-confidence. I thought it was pretty good. (laughs) So I sent it off. Without an agent, without a query letter or anything, I sent it off blind to every fiction publisher in New York. Then the rejection slip started rolling in. And finally, we got to the point where there was only one publisher that I hadn't heard back from. I want to say it was Harper Collins. I'm not sure. And now it was going on six, seven months, and I still haven't heard back and... I find I started calling. And of course the way things are today you go into phone you know, you get phone message limbo. You know, you keep right. calling and you keep getting the phone message and you leave your, your pathetic little message with your hat in your hand and your one toes crossed over the other one young like, <laughs> bang 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 baby, and I sent you this manuscript. <laughs> well this one particular Friday afternoon, I called in and I can only assume that the lady on the other end uh, was expecting a call from somebody else because a, a real human being picked up. This lady, and she was, uh, you know, I don't want to uh, type anybody, but if you had your typical snobby, snotty, egalitarian New York uh, publishing person, this one came over from Central Casting. <laughs> and... uh I said, you know, I sent this manuscript in so many months ago and I hadn't heard back from you. I wanted to, it's called The Last Open Road. And she pauses. Oh, yes, that's a wonderful, wonderful story. But we can't publish it. There's no market for, for that. Those people don't read.
0: Oh, ouch.
1: Boy, that went right through me. Yeah. And it made me mad. And when I went to my wife, I said, you know, Nobody in New York thinks that there's a market for this. And, and to be honest, New York's not a car town. You're crazy to own a car in New York. There are a lot of neat cars in and around New York, but there isn't the, the passion for it that you find in Watkins Glen or California. It, it's a different environment. Sure. I said, we're going to publish this ourselves. And my, my whole business plan was, I'll show you. That was it. I had nothing besides. I was so angry at this woman, and then to this day I don't know her name. Mm-hmm. But I was going to show her. Yeah. And we didn't have the money really to do it. It was a twenty grand outlay. And my wife backed me. She says, "Are you sure that we can sell these?" And I said, "Yes." I, you know, I've got a little following from the magazine, and everybody that's looked at the magazine, you know, at the manuscript says it's, you know, really, really good. But of course, what are your friends going to tell you? Of course. Yeah, I still like you, but your manuscript sucks. Right. They're not going to tell you that. Yeah, it's
0: like your mom.
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> and so we, and my at the time, my wife was, I uh, had a budding career as an actress, comedian. She was working with Second City in Chicago with, she worked for them, and she was pretty active in their, particularly in their children's theater, which she loves. And she said, you know, if this falls on us, our son isn't going to college. And she went back and got her, first she agreed that we could take out a second mortgage to publish the book. And she went back to get her teaching certificate so that she could teach in school uh, in case this thing fell on its face. So we published the book and, and, you know, the rest is history. We sold out two printings. It got picked up by a major publisher. Later, we bought the rights back from them and we are doing it on our own now again. But it was that woman saying, essentially slamming that last door. Yeah. Saying, you know, you're not going anywhere in the publishing world uh, with this. And, uh, you know, that actually opened the most important door.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's wonderful, and uh, I sure hope she's listening, because Bert would love to send you a signed copy, Miss, uh, so <laughs> yeah, you could really. have that. Bert, I'm going to go to this next question, but I'm having so much fun here, and the show's going long, that I'm going to turn this show into two shows, so oh, I want our listeners to uh, make sure that as we end this show here, that we're going to... Continue with a second part to Bert Levy's story, so be sure to find part two on CarsYad.com of this incredible story of an inspiring automotive enthusiast, Bert Levy. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah. Drive on over to Carsy.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun.